This is uh, Mark chapter 7. We'll look at uh, the first 23 verses. It reads this. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. And so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied, that's Jesus, Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commandments of God, of the commands of God, and are holding to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And after he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And he went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. This is God's word. If you would, let's pray together before we look at it. Father, we do ask that... Despite the uh, technical difficulties, despite this room, despite this place, that you will do what you always do, which is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. We pray, Spirit, would you come and be our teacher in these next few moments, and we would pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin by giving you three vignettes. Vignette number one. Uh, You know what it's like when someone leaves you a voicemail on your phone and you see before you even listen to the message that it's like four minutes long? You're like, good grief, did they just leave me a sermon like on my voicemail? And then you listen to it and all it is is them saying, hey, sorry I missed you, call me back. And they hang up or at least they thought they hung up. But they go about their day and uh, you're listening to someone live their life with nobody else listening or paying attention and you're thinking, you know, what will they do? What will they say? And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been on the other end of that, 
where someone comes up to you and says, hey, you know that voicemail that you left me yesterday when you were in your car? You thought you left like a five-second voicemail. It was actually like a four-minute one. And internally, you began to panic. And you think, what did I do? What did I say? Did I say something about them? Did I start singing? What, what was I doing in the car? And then you start to freak out a little bit. That's vignette number one. Vignette two. You, uh, let's just say hypothetically, you get a phone call from me, Matt Howell, and I say, hey, I want to get together with you tomorrow and talk about something. And you say, uh, okay, that's great. What do you want to talk about? And I say, yeah, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Hang out the phone. <laughs> and internally, you uh, start to do what you're doing now. You get a little squirmish, a little squeamy. Like, what, what did I do? Did I do something terrible that Matt found out about and he wants to talk with me about? Did I, did I say something bad about him that he wants to... You know, that he found out about? How have I offended him? And you start running through all these different scenarios. You start thinking through all these different situations of what is it that I did? Vignette number three. You're driving in your car, and behind you is a police officer, not with his lights on, but just back there, behind you. And so once you notice them, you, you, you know, you're rigidly 10 and 2. You're going the speed limit you know, as tight as you can. And so you think, okay, I'm just going to casually switch lanes and let the cop go on around me. And you switch lanes, and they switch lanes with you. And internally, you begin to freak out. And you think, okay, what did I do? Did I run a stop sign? You start scrolling through all the different scenarios. Here's what's going on with all three of these different vignettes. All three of these different little stories reveal something to you that deep down all of us know that we're not right. Deep, deep down, all of us know that there is something wrong. There is this deep inner sense that something is not right and we're just afraid of somebody exposing it. We're just afraid of somebody kind of getting their eyes on us. Because we feel that deep inner sense of guilt, that inner sense of something's not right, that deep inner sense of being unclean, uh, of something being dirty on the inside that we don't want anyone else to find out about. And so we're all insecure, and we're all just... All of those scenarios expose the fact that we're just afraid of somebody finding out about it. Now, what's going to go on in this story is that we're going to see that there are two opposing strategies on what to do with that deep inner sense of guilt, that deep inner sense of uncleanliness. And as Sinclair Ferguson describes it, this is a a scholar commentary that I've I've leaned on for this, he says that both of these um, strategies could be described as this. One is the outside-in approach, and one is the inside-out approach. So what I want to do for the rest of our time together is just look at each of these in turn. The outside-in approach of dealing with the inner sense of uncleanliness and guilt, and then the inside-out approach. That's what we're going to do. First, the outside-in strategy. Okay, in order to get our heads around this one, we need to understand what's going on in verses 1 through 5 of this story. Because here we find that the Pharisees, the religious people, were really into washing. They're washing everything. They're washing their hands. They're washing their cups. They're washing their kettles. In one of your translations, it says they're washing their couches. They're really into washing. And the reason they're into washing everything is not because they were germaphobes. This is not for hygienic reasons. This is for religious reasons. Because the Pharisees believed they had that sense of that inner guilty uncleanliness. But they felt like that inner uncleanliness disqualified them from getting in the presence of God. 
Because they thought, you know, if I touch something, if I interact with something that's unclean, that's dirty, that infects me, that makes me unclean, and therefore that makes me disqualified to go into God's presence. And so they approached God the way that a doctor would approach surgery. They had to scrub up. You had, to, you had to be sanitized. So they washed everything as a result. Now, if you think about this, this is not weird religious mumbo-jumbo from like old, you know, Middle Eastern, ancient, traditional times. This actually makes a lot of sense. If you go on a date with someone that you find interesting or you're interested in them or you're talking with them, what do you do before you go on a date with them? You take a shower. Let's hope so, at least. You take a shower. You brush your teeth. You, you put on deodorant. You, you scrub your, you know, the mouthwash thing. What are you doing? You're getting, you're getting the dirt off of you. You're cleaning up before you go into the presence of somebody that you really enjoy and really think is important. The Pharisees are doing the same exact thing. They, they felt like, I can't come into God's presence being dirty. I've got to clean up. But here's where the Pharisees made a misstep. The Pharisees thought the problem, though, is out there. The problem is out there. So as long as I can clean myself from what's going on out there, then I will be clean. That's the outside-in approach. And so, for example, what this would look like in modern-day practice for a modern-day outside-in pharisaical approach would be this. You think, uh, okay, I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to clean up my language. I'm going to stop doing this bad thing. I'm going to start doing this good thing. Uh, I'm going to avoid those certain people that I think are bad. I'm going to avoid you know, R-rated movies and Harry Potter and Hunger Games and explicit music and things like that because that will infect me. That, that will make me unclean. That will make me uh, uh, dirty. So the outside-in approach is this. I clean up my outside externally I clean up and inwardly then I'm okay, then I'm good, then I'm clean, then I'm all right. And Jesus is going to show us that this strategy, this approach to life and this approach to God doesn't work. And it doesn't work for two reasons that he's going to show us. He's basically saying, look, you've misdiagnosed the problem and therefore you're writing a bad prescription. So let me give you two reasons from this passage why this outside-in approach to God and approach to spiritual reality and approach to life doesn't work. Here's the first one. It doesn't go deep enough. But the first approach is wrong. The first reason that it doesn't work is because it doesn't go deep enough. If you look at verse 6, let me read verse 6 for you. Jesus quotes the Old Testament. He's quoting the, uh, the uh, prophet Isaiah. And he says in verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. The word hypocrite is the same Greek word for the word actor, play actor. And at this point, culturally and historically, play actors would actually wear a physical mask on their face to play the parts on stage. And, and, and that's what distinguished them from you know, common people. They were the actors. And Jesus is saying, look, you are, you're an actor. You're wearing a mask. When you do the outside-in religious approach to spiritual reality, you're dressing up and, and you're, you're acting spiritual, you're acting religious, but it doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't affect what your life, your, your actual life, it doesn't affect your heart because it's all just a show. And then he goes on, and that's why he quotes this passage from Isaiah, and he says, you praise God with your mouth, but your heart 
isn't into it. And here's the deal. The outside-in religious approach, it doesn't go deep enough because it doesn't deal with what you love. It only deals with your external behavior. So, for example, uh, when I was younger, I remember, uh, well, I'm sure this happened. I don't have vivid memories of this, but this had to have happened. I'm sure it happened to you, too, where uh, your mom or your dad comes to you and tells you to clean up your room. Get in there and clean up your room. And, of course, no kid wants to clean up their room unless they're weird. And let's just say, okay, so they, uh, so you tell your mom, no, I don't want to clean up my room. I want to go outside. I want to play. And then your parent kind of ups the ante and starts you know, threatening punishment or being grounded or whatever. And so you, you give in, you comply. And I remember cleaning my room on one time where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm putting the toys away and I'm cleaning my room, but I'm huffing, I'm stomping, I'm slamming doors as I'm doing it. I'm, I'm doing what I'm told, right? Cleaning my room. Now here's the question. Did I do what was asked of me? Uh, well, yes, I'm obeying what my mom told me to do, but I'm hating that I have to do it. See, see, the law comes to you, and, and all it does is it affects your behavior, but it doesn't get to your heart. It doesn't affect what you love, and it doesn't affect what you hate. And this is why some of you, or maybe some people that you know, have gotten so fed up with kind of the party scene, going out, char, Klondike, getting, getting just kind of bored with the party scene, and, and all, they, all of a sudden they get very religious, they start coming to RUF, they start coming to Bible studies, they start getting really religiously involved. And, and almost as mysteriously as they got religiously involved, they kind of mysteriously just disappear. And just kind of, after a while, just kind of go MIA and, and revert right back to the party scene. Now, what was going on there? The thing that was going on is that their religious involvement only changed their behavior for just a short season of their life, but it didn't, it didn't change what they actually loved. It didn't go deep enough. It didn't affect their heart. And and this is why, another example, why some of you uh, can be publicly very religious, very involved, very uh, mature and religious at a public level, but at a private level be messing around with your boyfriend and your girlfriend. And and it's that your, your public persona, your religious external behavior doesn't affect your heart, doesn't affect your life, doesn't affect what you really love, what you really want to do. I mean, this is also why, I think, uh, there have been Christian religious leaders that are very publicly animated about their stance and their judgment and their hatred against homosexuals. And then it comes out later that they've, they've been living kind of a secret homosexual lifestyle all along. I mean, you kind of hear about this over and over and over. I, I think this is kind of what was going on with the Sandusky Penn State scandal, if you remember this from a... a I guess last year, Sandusky is this guy who wants to, you know, create this organization to help these uh, young boys, and all the while he's sexually abusing them on the side. The, the external goodness, the external behavior doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't affect what you actually love. It doesn't affect your heart. And that's Jesus' issue here. This is, this is the first reason he says why it doesn't work. It's because the outside in approach is it's superficial. It's external. Here's the second reason why the outside-in approach doesn't work. If you look at verse 9 through 13, Jesus gives us this uh, example. He says, okay, if you look at the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments, which is from God, from Moses, is to honor your father and your mother. 
that's in the Bible. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And what he does is he, he brings up this practice that had developed among the religious people at the time. They had said, you know, the really spiritually elite people said, I'm going to take some of my money and I'm going to dedicate it to God. And, and that was a practice that they called Corbin. It's a word that just meant dedicated to God. So they would take some of their money and they would devote it to God because they were really, really spiritual, really serious about their faith. So then Jesus says, okay, what happens then uh, when, when your parents actually need help? They need financial help. They get older and they need you. They come to you and they say, hey, I need financial assistance. And if your response is, well, you know what? I'm sorry. My money is, is God's money. My money is dedicated to God. Now, I can't use it to help you. Jesus is saying, you, you are obeying a law that you made up over against a law that's actually in the Bible. This is his whole point with verse 13. He says, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition. He's saying, look, you're following these man-made laws, these man-made rules that make you look really good, really religious, really spiritual. But what's really going on is that all it's doing is, is reinforcing your love for yourself. All it's doing, it doesn't deal with your inner selfishness. All it's doing is it's feeding and fueling yourself. Example. I heard this story, I think it was from uh, Charles Spurgeon, was the person that originated this kind of made-up story. And the made-up story goes like this. There's this king who uh, is in charge of this whole kingdom, and one of his servants comes to him. And one of the servants, you know, just really loves and respects and wants to honor his king. And so he brings him a carrot from his garden. And he brings the king this carrot. And he says, you know, king, uh, I just want to honor you with something from my garden. Here is a carrot. And the king was so honored by this and so um, uh, he felt so respected and enjoyed by this. He said, you know what? I'm going to give you a whole acre of my kingdom so that you can grow carrots. You can kind of cultivate it and garden. Do whatever you want. Here's a whole acre of my land. Take it. And there's another servant who's in the court at this point listening to this story. And he thinks, man, if that's what you get for a carrot, a stinking little measly carrot, what would happen if I brought something much better? So the next day, that servant goes out and he brings in like this stallion, this huge like war horse. And he presents it to the king and says, here, king, take this majestic steed. And the king says, you know, thank you very much for that. And there's just kind of this awkward silence where the servant's like um, anything else and uh, the king the king very wisely says to him yesterday the servant brought me the carrot but you are giving yourself the horse and he didn't give him anything what this means is that you, you can come to God and try to honor God. You, you can bring to God your service, your obedience, your stuff, and it all just be about you for what you can get in return. And it has nothing to do with him. You don't want to honor him. You don't want to worship and praise him. You just want to manipulate him to get something in return. And here's what this means practically. This means that you can love RUF and come every single week. You can lead Bible studies. You can go on mission trips. You can go to the Passion Conference. You can be discipling other people. You can be reading your Bible every morning and journaling afterward. And it all be about you. All of it be about you. 
You can do all of that stuff to just be using God to get from God what you really want. You don't, you know, you can just, you can do all that and never actually love Jesus, but just love the way that Jesus enables other people to think of you as important or as cool or as mature or as spiritual. You don't love him, you just love the benefits. You just love what you get out of it. And, and this is, this is Jesus' whole point. He says you can look actually very obedient on the outside and actually be disobedient on the inside. This means you, you really could have never missed a quiet time this whole year, but because you hate your roommate, you're being disobedient. And you're guilty and dirty in God's sight. You could... Um, be leading Bible studies and uh, doing evangelism on campus. But because there's someone, you know, you could be in leadership with RUF or leadership with another campus ministry or another church, but because you refuse to forgive someone who's hurt you, you look externally obedient, but because you refuse to uh, forgive someone who's hurt you, you're actually being disobedient and guilty and dirty in God's sight. And, And this is the whole point. The whole point with the outside-in religious approach is that it doesn't work. When you try to clean yourself up by scrubbing up on the outside, it doesn't work. Because it doesn't go deep enough and it doesn't deal with your own inner selfishness. And by the way, it's not just religious people either. We're all trying to cleanse ourselves in one way or another. This is why some of you so desperately want to look pretty or want to be a certain size or, or want to lift that amount in the weight room. You're just trying to clean yourself up through that or through your political involvement, your social involvement, your volunteer work, all of it is just photoshopping yourself. All of it is just, is just trying to scrub away the inner deep guilt and stain, and it won't work. So, that's the first approach. The outside-in approach to spiritual reality, to God, to life. Jesus is saying, look, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But, in verse 14... Jesus begins to transition. And now he's going to lay out for us the right approach. The right approach is not the outside-in strategy, but it's the inside-out. Let's look at this uh, for the rest of our time. Look at, um, look at verse 15. Jesus is saying, okay, this approach doesn't work because you've misdiagnosed the problem. You're writing a bad prescription because you don't understand the problem. So let's go back and figure out what the problem actually is. Verse 15, Jesus says this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of the man that makes him unclean. Here's what Jesus is saying. The problem is not out there in the world. The problem is in your heart. And for the Hebrew mind, the heart wasn't just some organ in your chest. The heart was sort of the central spot in your personality. It was the center of your identity. And so here's what Jesus is saying. If if you take this idea and translate it into our modern context, here's what he's basically saying. He is saying when you lust, the problem is not the internet. The problem is that you love perverted sexuality. He is saying, when you are angry and frustrated, the problem is not your roommate. The problem is that you're selfish and you hate when other people are obstacles to what you want. He is saying, when you get, when you get wasted, the problem is not your sorority, it's not your fraternity, it's not even the alcohol. The problem is that you just desperately want to escape from the world that you're actually living in. 
What he's basically saying is the problem is on the inside. That's what's wrong with you. That's what's wrong with the world. If I were to take a glass of water and filled it up to the brim and brought a chair up here on stage and put the glass of water on the stage, and if I were to just kind of gently jostle the chair for a second, what would happen? The water would spill out, right? Because the water was in the glass. So what happens when, when you get jostled in life, when, when someone breaks up with you, when the roommates don't do the dishes, when you get crossed in some way, and the thing that naturally spills out is anger and hatred and bitterness or despair or despondency, what does that tell you? That tells you that was in there all along, and all it took was one little jostle, one little move for it to spill out. Look, this is Jesus' whole point. Look at verse 21 through 23. I'll read it again, even though I read it a second ago, and it was, this is the sobering part. Jesus is saying, look, for from within, <coughs> out of men's hearts, come what? What is it that spills out? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside a man and make him unclean. Jesus is saying this. You are the problem. I am the problem. That's what he's saying. In the early 1900s, the London Times did a, uh, a, a thing where authors and celebrities were invited to write an essay and answer this question that would be published uh, for, the, for, the, for their readers. And the question that all these different authors and celebrities had to write was this. What is wrong with the world? So all these different people wrote in and gave their answers. And G.K. Chesterton was one of the people that wrote in and gave his answer. And G.K. Chesterton was kind of like a Roman Catholic version of C.S. Lewis before there was C.S. Lewis. And so G.K. Chesterton writes in his essay response to what is wrong with the world. And here's what he writes. Dear sirs, comma, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. It's beautiful. He gets it. He understands I am the problem. And this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, you are the problem. Matt Howell is the problem. It's not the rated R movies. It's not Harry Potter. It's not your parents. It's not your professors. It's not the internet. It's not your classes. It's not this campus. It's you. All along, it has been you and it has been me. Our hearts and our issues are the problem. And so, if that's Jesus' diagnosis of the problem, then what is his solution? Here's the solution. If you look at verse 19, there's a little hint of it, and I get this from Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City. But, but here's what he says. There is this little footnote that the author of Mark makes in parentheses, and here's what he says. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus is saying, look, the food laws, the purity laws, all the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament are fulfilled in me. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. Now, because of my life, death, and resurrection, because of who I am, I have the power to pronounce unclean things clean. Here's the point. Jesus makes unclean things clean. He takes things that are dirty and he cleans them. But you have to understand, in order to clean something, Something that is once clean has to become dirty. 
That's how it works. Whenever you clean something, there's always a trading of places. So, for example, I remember when I was in high school and I first got the little um, tub of OxyPad wipes for your face from, you know, CVS. Maybe you know where this is going. I remember this is the first time I've ever done this. Pull out this little gleaming white circular pad that you kind of rub all over your face. It gets the oil, it gets the grime, gets the dirt all off of your face. First time I did that, and then look at it afterwards, you know, you want to throw up. Because it's disgusting. It's, it's like it was white a second ago. Why is it brown now? Am I that disgusting of a human being, apparently? But that, that's what happens. When, when, if you want to make something clean, something that is clean has to become dirty. If, if uh, this, is just, this is how cleaning works. Clean toilet paper must get soiled if it's going to clean your body. Kleenex has to get snotty and nasty if it's going to clean your nose. Uh, you know, a napkin has to get messy if it's going to wipe the spaghetti sauce you know, off of your face. This is, how, this is how cleaning works. In order to make something clean, whatever is clean first has to get dirty. And Jesus is saying this. I can make you clean, and I will make you clean, but I first have to become dirty for you. This is why there's that great verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says this. God made him who knew no sin, who was clean, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what that's saying. On the cross, Jesus was wrapped in the disgusting filth of our sin, of our dirt, of our guilt, of our shame. In other words, when God looked at Jesus on the cross, he might as well have been looking at someone wrapped in feces and vomit. That's how disgusting and repulsive Jesus was on the cross to God. And on the cross, Jesus is bearing the punishment of how disgusting, of how nasty, and how filthy sin really is. So that when you come to Jesus by faith... What you get is a gleaming white, beautiful garment of gleaming white righteousness wrapped around you. Costly, gleaming white, clean righteousness. Costly because it costs Jesus his life and his blood for you. There's always a trading of places. Jesus who was, un- Jesus who was clean becomes unclean so that he can pronounce people like you and me who are unclean, clean. Jesus who was clean became unclean so that he could pronounce people like you and me who are unclean, clean. Now, some of you are really happy tonight. At least you were before this. You came in here, and you evaluate your week, and you say, you know, I'm doing really good this week. I haven't really screwed up. I'm doing pretty good. And you feel good about yourself. You've performed well. Others of you come in here and you feel despondent, you feel depressed, you feel like you've blown it. You've screwed up this week and you know when and you know how. Both of you are doing the outside-in approach to life. Even though one of you feels good and one of you feels bad, both of you, my guess is, deep down, you you feel angry, you feel bitter, and you feel exhausted. And you want to get off of this hamster wheel that you feel like you're running on, trying to clean up, trying to scrub yourself, and it's going nowhere. Here's what I want you to see. The outside-in approach, the religious approach, comes to you and it says this. Clean up. Scrub up. Try harder. Do better. Clean up your act. The inside-out gospel approach comes to you and says, 
Jesus cleans you. Jesus cleans you. Look, I will, um, I will end with this. There is uh, this park that I heard about in Guelph, Ontario. G-U-E-L-P-H. Guelph. Guelph, Ontario, there's this park. And this park has this river that's running through it. And this park has these big statues posted all throughout the park. But the statues are very... Um, Ordinary in one sense, because one's, like one's like a statue of like a dinosaur, one's a statue of like a mother holding its kid, one's a, one of like a little boy riding his bike, big huge statues. But what's so weird about these statues is that they were made from the debris that washed up on the riverbed of these rivers. What, what happened was is that every single year, uh, the river would kind of wash up all of this garbage, algae-covered tires and uh, urinals and strollers and coke cans and shoes and just all of this trash would wash up on shore. And so the uh, officials decided, okay, let's not gather all this stuff up and haul it off to the landfill. Let's gather it up, clean it up, and bring in artists to come in and use the very stuff from the river and to sculpt these beautiful sculptures. And that's what they did. And now the park is filled with these beautiful sculptures of basically the garbage that was once right there. This passage is looking at you and saying, look, Jesus is that great artist who can come to the junk of your life, the regrets, the shame, the the guilt over stuff that you don't want anyone to know about. He can come to you and come to that stuff and, and clean it up and actually use that very thing to sculpt your life into something beautiful. But the question is, will you come to him? That's the invitation I want to leave you with tonight. Will you come to him with your junk, with your garbage, with the stuff that is stuffed away in your closet? Are you willing to be radically honest and to come to him and be like G.K. Chesterton and say, I am what's wrong. It's me. It is my heart. I am what's wrong. It's not my roommate. It's not anybody else. It's me. If you are willing to to undergo that sort of radically honest, dismantling self-assessment, that is where the cleansing begins. Because when you come to him with that sort of honesty, the promise of the gospel is that he will receive you, he will clean you, and he will take your life and make it beautiful. So that's the invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us the confidence and the faith and the courage to look at our life, to assess our life, to assess and to do an inventory of our heart and to see the anger, to see the greed, to see the lust, to see the dysfunctionality, the entitlement, the bitterness, and to just admit we're what's wrong. And I pray, Father, that would not throw us into despair But when we throw ourselves in your arms, that that would actually throw us into joy and into worship. Because we know that there is no no sin that is so great that could cast you away from us. You, You run, receive, and embrace guilty, shamed, dirty sinners like ourselves. Father, would you take us for as messy... And and, uh, as guilty as we find ourselves, take us, clean us, and make us into something beautiful. This is our only hope, and we'd ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.